how have you been? How are things going for you? Things are good, man. Uh, yesterday, <clears throat> we finally removed the restrictions on um, you know going around without a mask, and so mm-hmm. it's like returning to normal here in California, which is which feels really exciting and strange and weird and it's like seeing people without masks and like not actually automatically judging them for being unsafe like it's it's confusing but i'm excited yeah i saw you posted a couple of pictures or at least Mm. one that i've seen with uh, with california so (laughs) i'm glad to know people are going out now and things are can i say things are going back to normal because the new normal is going to be a different kind of normal uh it's still you know (sighs) We're still in an in-between, for sure, you know, because there's still, I mean, we've hit about 70% of vaccinations uh, in California, which means there's, you know, 30% of the population that still hasn't, you know, been vaxxed. And so there's a risk for them. There may be mutations that, you know, require us to close down, shut down again. Um, We may need booster shots. So it's not like we're in the pre-times. And so much of life, I think, has changed. So many things have accelerated. Um, A lot of cracks and infrastructure have been exposed. So, you know, I think like, just like we're in the early innings of like social audio, we're in the early, early days of what it means to be post pandemic and all the things that it shows us about what was and wasn't working even beforehand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I understand. I understand. Yeah. We'll see how that goes just like social audio or as I will ask you in a couple of minutes, uh, SaaS and product hunt. So right. let's uh, let's let's switch gears. What what I plan to do is get the conversation, get the ball rolling for a bit, yeah, and then open the floor to 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 people for their questions. I'll be here to moderate and um, yeah. So to to get things started, um, I'm curious to know a bit of a wide question, but we, we'll slowly but surely get into more precise questions. Uh, a bit of a direct question. What's your uh, what drives you? What's the drive behind all these things you're doing on Product Hunt, and which I admire, by the way. So mm. this is definitely coming from that place. Yeah, yeah. And your, I could even say, journalism mm. when it comes to apps, tech insights, stuff yeah. like that. So one thing that I love is uh, how you post all the updates to app icons. <laughs> it's a small thing, but I don't know why it always gets my attention. Yeah, um, that I, I I feel seen, which feels nice. Um, uh, let's see the the broadest theme, I guess, for me um, throughout my life, my career, in lots of ways, is just finding a great deal of satisfaction out of being useful. Um, it's it's I've realized in the last couple of years that that's kind of uh, a personal mission, and there are different ways for me to be useful at different times. I find that. If there's a lot of people all working and doing the same things, then there's not that much for me to contribute because I'm such a generalist. I tend to think in kind of larger abstract um, systems, which cannot be very useful sometimes when you're trying to be very tactical, very specific, very precise. One of the things that I really struggled with in uh, high school um, was that I was always so abstract. I I couldn't focus on the materials in class because I was trying to make sense of everything. And they're just do the, you know, take the test, like, you know, answer the questions, like stop trying to like overthink this. And so that uh, endemic problem, I guess, um, also became kind of like a superpower over time because it meant that I con- wanted to consume and always consumed a lot of information and I tried to make sense of it and I tried to understand the the pressures and the tension and how things interact with each other 
to cause things to happen. And again, see, there's a perfect example of being super abstract. But where I was thinking about that or how that applies was in coming up with the idea, for example, for the hashtag, I had to look at Mm -hmm. a lot of different things that were going on in order to solve a problem using a a mechanism that was available to me. You know, I didn't work for Twitter. I wasn't an engineer. I um, was simply a user of the platform, but I was looking at a number of things that were all coming together at once and trying to solve a problem that people were describing that they were having. And that tends to be something that I really like to do. It's almost like a puzzle that um, I need to, work out. And then if you come up with like a really elegant solution that combines a lot of the challenges or problems that people are experiencing, then you can, um, it's almost like, you know, shooting an arrow through like 12 bullseyes, you know, back to back to back and like (laughs) arriving at that feels so satisfying and good. And, um, I don't know, I guess there's like also this need to feel clever, um, (laughs) you know, and, and that's just, it's, it's motivated me in many ways. So to speak also specifically to what I do. So if you search on hashtag new app icon, um, I, there's all these kind of unnoticed changes to our digital environment that are constantly happening and they can have very subtle impacts or very profound impacts. And Mm -hmm. the changing of app icons typically to me is a signal of something going inside of a, going on inside of a company. And, you know, having worked at big tech companies, I understand how those conversations happen and how they evolve and, and grow. And a lot of people end up just feeling the, I don't know, like the launch of something as though it just came out of nowhere, right? Uh-huh. Whereas many of these things can take months and months to go through approvals. And, you know, there's a lot of different surface areas that um, can be affected by a simple icon change. So when that happens... You know, if it's a small startup, maybe, you know, they did it over a weekend, not a big deal. But for bigger companies, it can signify, you know, like the executive sort of came in and said, you know, we need to go in this new direction. And so therefore, we're going to, you know, do a rebrand so that people think a little bit differently about us. And so it's those subtle ways in which these platforms manipulate us into whatever their goals might be in ways that we don't otherwise like see or notice or understand because they don't always do a good job of expressing it or coming out and just saying it. Um, And also because they want to do A-B tests, you know, in different environments. So to me, an app icon change, as simple and basic as it is, can sometimes indicate or be evidence of a larger structural shift um, that's coming. Yeah, and I love that. I love because it's, it's, I didn't want to interrupt you because I like how your flow was going. (laughs) These uh, small changes, something as small as an app icon is happening right under our nose. Yep. And at, at best, you notice and you, and you show it to a friend, which is why I love you documenting it, because as you very well pointed out, they more often than not uh, show a bigger change that's happening. Sorry about this, Aaron. This is just central London for you. Yeah, no worries. Uh, and, uh, and the fact that you put it down on paper, so to speak, right. uh, makes, makes me have a place to go back to, to say, oh, Trello has been doing this, but look. Is actually been kind of right. hinted at. Maybe yeah. the 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 message was between the lines. Yes. Yeah. So the other thing that's the way I think about myself, and I've been doing this since two thousand four. So it's a little bit of an OCD, uh, I don't know, type of behavior. But if you go back to my Flickr account, Flickr.com/slash/FactoryJoe. I've been taking screenshots and documenting the digital landscape for a long time. I kind of think of myself as like a digital photographer trying to make sense of scenes that I observe and witness so that we can see the arc of change uh, of, of the digital revolution, you know, happening from the beginning, you know, like 
one of the things that I find is so interesting is how things come back around cyclically. Like now I've been in this space long enough to see you know, ideas that we had back in the early or mid 2000s um, are, are relevant again. And when we tried to, you know, my, the, my, the early community that I was a part of, try to get these ideas out there, people weren't ready. They didn't really understand what we were talking about. They didn't have the language. They didn't have the concerns, the fears. And so it just, it didn't, it didn't connect. And so now yeah. we're having those conversations again and we're like, look, we already did a lot of the work for this, you know, from first principles, not trying to compromise with the current state of affairs or advertising or the business models or whatever. You know, I'm thinking specifically in this case of uh, an identity protocol that I contributed to called OpenID. And the idea back then was that everybody could own their own digital identity and to connect to each other in a peer to peer fashion. And we came up with a bunch of technologies and protocols to enable this, but we just, there wasn't a business model there at the time. And so, mm -hmm. although some companies adopted the technology to power some of their um, service offerings, we just never really got the broad kind of, um, you know, momentum that let's say Web3 and crypto has gotten, even though a lot of the ideas stem from the same root. Yeah. I want to touch upon that later with a question of an in-between question. Yeah. Uh, you just mentioned basically waves in the industry, but I'll get back to that later. Uh, I want to move on from this app icon thing because sure. it's not really related to SaaS, but I wanted to point out because uh, it, it kind of feels to me, I can see Jane Wong in the audience. Yeah. Hello, Jane. And it feels to me like when you post that, I got some sort of a of an early access, early info, kind of like what Jane shares. Yeah. Um, so please keep doing that bottom line. <laughs> Let's move on to SaaS, especially sure. for the people that might come here in this room from, uh, from the subreddit. Uh, talk to me, if you will, about Product Hunt and SaaS. Mm. Uh, that's, that's not a question in itself, so let me pose a question. Um, how, how do you see SaaS and Product Hunt going hand in hand in, in today's world and in the future? This is a, in some ways, a very profound question um, because how do I impact this? Let me start by saying that there's a ton of SaaS that's launching on Product Hunt, and and for those who don't know what Product Hunt is, Product Hunt is is kind of I would say it is the app store for everything that doesn't exist in the app store. Essentially, hmm. um, you know, you don't really. I mean, yes, if you build an app, obviously for the Play Store or the App Store, you're going to launch it there. But in terms of telling the overall story from a maker's perspective, um, or if you don't have an app at all and you're just a web app, then Product Hunt is a great place for you to go to bring your service and to talk to people about it um, and to find your customers or to promote what you're doing. Um, the thing that I find a little bit challenging about Product Hunt and SaaS now is that there's so much SaaS that's launching that is, I don't know if I want to say like redundant, but very similar. There's a lot of stuff that's coming out that's either using the same APIs, the same you know G GPT-3 capabilities, <laughs> a lot of marketing stuff. And I guess that's okay. You know, I guess I grew up in an era where you'd have kind of one app that would be used to do something very specifically. And there weren't that many competitors. Um, you know, you might have a few, but they'd have a pretty different or unique approach. And now I'm finding that there's just like a lot of collaboration tools. There's a lot of like screen sharing apps. There's a lot of screen recording apps. Um, many, in many cases, probably because people started around the same time to address the same problems and they've just had their heads down for, you know, any number of months and some launched faster and some launched slower and, 
the fruits of all, let's say, the things that were being planted in the early phase of the pandemic are starting to come out now. So on the one hand, I think it's really important and really great to be able to come to Product Hunt to share your product, to get it out there and tell your story. But I think if you want to do well on Product Hunt, you actually have to go above and beyond and go deeper in terms of what is the overall, you know, what is your worldview? What do you intend to do? What commitment do you want to make to your customers? And how do you bring that to life? Um, and that's a lot of what I've been thinking about and working on um, in terms of Product Hunt launches more recently. I've had another question for later, but you just answer it now. The okay. question was, you've seen hundreds, uh, probably actually thousands of products yeah. and uh, their launches on Product Hunt. And the question was, what do people miss? What do they not simply get? Mm. Would you say what you just said is the best answer or, or is there another answer that's no. even better for this question? I think, um, so the first mistake that people make on Product Hunt or launching on Product Hunt is that they don't step back and think about their goals. So what is it that you want to achieve? What are you actually trying to prove? What are you trying to learn? And it requires you first to have a sense of what's possible and what product hunt can bring you. You know, product hunt can obviously bring you attention. It can bring you awareness. It can bring you inve investor interest. It can bring you press PR. Um, it can be part of a PR, your marketing campaign. Um, it can help you recruit, you know, find, you know, people to, to, to help you or to collaborate on integrations. So it's so important to start with what you actually want to achieve and then craft all of the content, the materials, the details, the metadata, your gallery, the icon, the logo um, in service of those goals. And so the mistake that people make is that they just think, oh, this is like an app store and I'm just going to you know, list my thing. And then it falls flat because you can actually have a lot more control over who receives your message and what they make of it. So that's first. I think the second mistake that people make is that once they've decided those goals, they don't do a great job of activating their community long before they ever come to Product Hunt. You know, I think of launching on Product Hunt as a little bit like launching on Kickstarter and momentum is so important. And unlike a Kickstarter where you can have, let's say 30 days to make an impact, you've got 24 hours. And so from the moment you launch, and typically I recommend that people launch at midnight PST. So you got 24 hours of visibility around the world. Um, and Product Hunt is a very global audience. Um, you've got to make every minute count, and that requires doing a you know planning in advance. But like, if you just want to be on Product Hunt to be on Product Hunt, you could like launch you know like four PM PST, and you know tell no one and get twelve upvotes, and maybe that's fine to start. So, I guess like calibrating your your goals is is like a really essential piece of the overall picture and story, and then activating your community is um, essential. Totally understood, but let me let me try and be the voice of some of a large majority of the community I'm running, mm -hmm. which is Reddit SaaS. A big part of Reddit SaaS is B two B SaaS, and if if I could try being their voice, yep. I would say Chris, that makes that makes a lot of sense. But I would I love all that PR, possibly PR that that influx of people and users from Product Hunt, mm -hmm. but but my SaaS is B2B, which isn't really for the masses. Do I have a chance on Product Hunt or is it just not a good fit and I should? Oh, I mean, I actually think that uh, Product Hunt would be more relevant than, you know, the, like even like the Apple App Store. You know, Apple is all about like, I would say the average consumer, like the, you know, run of the mill person who 
still doesn't necessarily want to define themselves as being a technology user. Um, you know, they're using technology for entertainment, for connection, for social, for school. Um, whereas B2B, yes, obviously has a presence um, in, in the app store, but not in the way that I think you can really deconstruct what you're working towards in a, for a more sophisticated audience. You know, I, I think obviously there are plenty of like Reddit subreddits that you can go to and you can publish and share what you're working on. But Product Hunt, one, through its topic system, allows you to get pretty granular about what the product is that you're building and who it's for. And that's really important. Um, and uh, again, like... I think the goals of being on product hunt, I don't know. I've just, I've launched a number of SaaS products this year and people, mm-hmm. you know, tell me that not only do they get a bunch of, you know, consumer or customer interest, you know, the day that they launch, but as a result of being in product hunt search results, um, yeah. they get, there's a very long tail of interest. So the way I talk about it or think about it is that depending on how well you do on your launch, will influence how well you surface in search results. And then if you encourage people to add your product to collections of related products, um, or, you know, this is, I don't know, here's, here's my suite of things or my collection of things that I use for my business. And you get people to share those types of collections. Now you've created a personal lens through which people can recommend SaaS to each other. So there's a lot more to it than I think just, imagining that product hunt is for the masses because product hunt is not at all where the masses go. It's really about people who are in product, they're product makers, they're designers, they're VCs, you know, they're, I, I think a much more discerning crowd than you're going to get in a lot of other places. Yeah, I, I get that. And I have learned that for myself when with my brother, David, who's, who's in the audience, we at one point made uh, uh, get startup funding was the cheeky name for this thing we've made where we've basically put together and this has been done and overdone in, in time mm. we've put together a list of uh, pitch decks used by ah. uh, successful yeah. companies but successful for the lens of raising money and we have noticed how not only months but years after because mm-hmm. people were searching because our name was cheeky get startup funding and people <laughs> right. were how do I get start or stuff like that we, we kept getting upvotes and even messages from people saying, thanks for making that. Uh, and that's when I learned as well that this this common piece of advice that Proc Hunt is like a shot of tequila, you have it and then you go to bed, you have it, you get drunk and then you go to bed, isn't doesn't have to be that way if you're considerate for what you just uh, related, which is the long term and how... how yeah, I mean, here's another way to think about this too, right? And why I also encourage makers to be strategic about how often and whether they come back and launch multiple times. Because for product builders, there isn't really a kind of GitHub that shows off your work. I mean, increasingly, there are a few products and platforms, whether it's, you know, LinkedIn, I think, has projects and Contra just launched and they're more project oriented. But if you're a builder or a maker, Product Hunt is a great place to sort of grow your portfolio of products over time. And when you go to someone's profile, there's a tab that says made, presuming you've launched something that you made, and it lists the things that you've actually produced. And that can be highly valuable and useful um, to get a sense for someone's tastes, someone's ability, um, their interests, their background. You know, it's not just saying, oh, I worked at company X. It's like, here's the thing that I actually used. And if you ever experienced it, um, then that was my contribution. Yeah, that's strong. Not to mention, especially if you're either looking for a job or Justin Jackson from Transistor was making this thread yesterday, which I think got a lot of uh, attention, at least in the indie community of how if you 
are an indie founder and you haven't reached a certain master of MRR, a bigger company could not acquire, but not hire somewhere in between. So do that for you at a certain at a certain salary that makes sense for you and uh, eases all that financial pressure. Yep. And I could just see how what you just said ties in very very nicely with what Justin was saying yep. to the point where that product hunt. So uh, perhaps a company looking to hire you like that wouldn't even look at your CV. Their product hunt profile might be just enough for making a decision. Totally. You know, another great way to think about that, right, is that if a company who's trying to build a product along the lines of something you've already built, that means that you've actually thought about this. And so if they're looking for someone to come build that in-house, either, you know, yeah. maybe they do aqua hire you or they're like, Hey, it looks like you've done something in this space. We really need this help. Can we take you on as a consultant or take you on full-time? So as a CV, I think it's really interesting and not to, you know, overdo this metaphor, but the product hunt made tab on your profile is a little bit like a blockchain type of thing because you can look back over time and see how much you've you know produced over let's say years and you can go back and say oh like four years ago you built this thing and i'm going to look at the screenshots and they're uh they're not that great but you can see kind of an evolution in you know your aesthetic or your approach or your marketing or whatever Um, and that can be i think very very powerful no, I get the, the blockchain parallel. It's like your public trusted ledger because CV, you can keep editing it. But exactly. Product, if you, if well, and it's also there's social product. validation, right? Like, did yeah, you meet the exactly. moment and did you build something that people responded to? And based on the upvotes or based on the comments, you get a sense for like the relative popularity of the thing that you built. Right. I want to open the floor to questions. I'll just have one question now, but anybody listening to this, we can do either of the two things. Click the button in the lower left corner to request the mic and queue for a question. Or if you have a question, but you can't ask it for whatever reason, feel free to DM me. I'll read your question out loud for Chris. I'll be your voice. So uh, I'll have people queue now if they have a question, but I'll just go on with the next question, which I promised you I'll come back to. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, A surfer is as good as the wave they're riding. Talk to us, Chris, if you will, about the next one to three years uh, about SaaS and Proc Hunt or just Proc, whatever you feel like sharing. Give us some insights and some predictions. Interesting. Um, you know, the SaaS thing is, it feels a Let's see, how do I put this? If I think about my own experience, one of the things that I'm noticing is I'm just, one, I'm using a lot of SaaS um, and it's almost becoming a little bit overwhelming, you know, like. I suppose you have to have a really, you know, pretty good business where you're actually making money and charging um, because you're going to end up spending, uh, you know, a good amount of money on subscriptions over time. For example, I went through um, this on-deck course creator program and, um, you know, there's a number of tools, you know, whether it's Airtable or Thinkific or, um, I don't know, there's a bunch of just like software that goes into being a... Um, a cohort-based course creator um, or a creator in general. And my, I asked the question of someone who'd been doing this for a while, like, how much are you spending on a monthly basis for all these, you know, apps and software that's driving your business? And just for an individual, it can go, you know, several hundred dollars, right? So you're spending two to $300 a month um, on all these different apps. Um, that may be sustainable based on the business that you're in, or it may not be. 
so I think that that's a really interesting dynamic where people are, are really able to and starting to realize how much it costs to be a creator, but that the creator economy is also, as you say, sort of like this wave that's rising up to meet people and to provide avenues for charging or having an income, you know, and I think that's very interesting to see how that's going to play out. Um, you're asking about SaaS and B2B SaaS and what I don't Maybe you can unpack that a little bit in terms of whether you're no. imagining if you're talking about individuals or remote work or big companies or what scale we're talking about. Any kind of SaaS, really. The, the question earlier was B2B because uh, mm-hmm. I've heard this this, vo- this concern voiced on the community of mine is B2B. What the hell do I do on Product Hunt? But any type of SaaS, and I guess the reason why it's a wide question is because at the end, SaaS is... A business model like sure a couple of years ago or the previous decade or previous two decades it was this new thing but now it's essentially a business model and we see new variations of that like productized services that's not a SaaS, but people still call it SaaS because of the subscription aspect so um uh, to, to unpack i like what you were saying i understand and i'm i have the same opinion about subscription saturation so yeah. to speak like with like uh, the reason why I'm asking is because SaaS is definitely maturing, and in this cycle, in this uh, set of, uh, uh, we're probably leaving spring and we're going to summer, or we yeah. might be leaving uh, summer and going into autumn. Uh, I was asking more of how how do you see this the, the next um, okay. the next I, I, I have a thought. season? Yeah, um, go on. Because I think on the one hand, it would be a mistake to confuse you know the distribution that SaaS provides, in other words, you know, putting something on a server and then charging people access to it, and then thinking about the number of integrations that need to happen between all that SaaS in order to power your business, um, is the core value prop. Like, we are, I think, largely in the integration phase where, I mean, one of the technologies that I worked on, which I described in the early, you know, uh, later 2007, 2008 era, um, is called OAuth. And OAuth is a conventional way of sharing tokens, essentially, that provides you a way to access different APIs. And then once you have those tokens, the APIs can be you know, bespoke and you, know, you can have deeper integrations between them or whatever. But that pattern, I think, is becoming quite normal and common. And so on a number of products that I see launching on Product Hunt, one of the big slides that they have is, you know, here's all the different things that we integrate with. So integrations has become a very common standard thing. It's sort of a lingua franca between all these different things and that you might choose different SaaS based on the types of integrations that they have. So that's relatively new, but it sort of is also, I don't know, like you think about like the Zapiers of the world or the ifs and how they um, just add more and more integrations and point-to-point solutions over time. So let's presume that that's analogous to... uh, kind of industrial plumbing or um, the sewer system. So everything is able to connect to everything else is my point. The real question that is, once that data is flowing, what can you do with it and how do you make sense of it? And so we're still kind of in the data formulation phase of making sense of information and how to record it. The next phase, the next, let's say, three to five years, I think is going to be a lot more about synthetic content and synthetic media and synthetic insights. And an example of that might be GPT-3. So imagine mm-hmm. taking a bunch of data sources, you know, from, I don't know, lots of different places, right? 
integrating into one data set that's combined and merged, and maybe it's you know via a graph API, and then piping that graph API into some generator or set of generators that's producing images, it's producing text, it's producing videos, and it's using synthetic actors or um, you know 3D uh, people to produce videos. Like that's where this is going to go. I'm pretty sure. And the question is, what is that like? And is that good or is that bad? Right. Like if you think about customer service, there are a number of ways, I guess, like I think about hmm. my, my best experiences with customer service have really been with Apple. Um, they do a really good job. One, if you call them, they do have a synthetic voice, a synthetic uh, assistant that you talk to, and then it routes your call to a human. And that yeah. combination of AI assisted humanity is probably like the epitome of technology serving humanity as opposed to the other way around. So the more services that are designed in that pattern, I think the better off human experience is going to be. Whereas when we're just extracting content and information from people and then turning it into, you know, computer algorithms and leaving the humans out, that feels like that's not a great direction for humanity to go in. Very interesting. Very interesting. I, I want to take a, uh, a moment to remind the audience that they can queue for a question. Uh, I, I can interrupt any of my questions at any time when, when we have one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I understand this. And I've heard this notion of the API economy, which made yep. me think of what you were saying earlier. And it's very interesting to, to have you categorize this, the integration or data formulation phase and then synthetic data. Mm -hmm. Let's let's go uh, off script, even though I have mm -hmm. more questions written. Sure. Uh, you mentioned GPT-3, and it quickly came to mind when you said synthetic data. Mm -hmm. And uh, one thing I've noticed there is that you see startups like Copy AI or yep. uh, Wordsmith or Conversion AI, and it just made me realize, like, huh, so interesting. There's this open AI API, beta, you know, pre-access, and people rush to the commercial use, obviously, because when you're making a business, you want to have commercial use. Mm -hmm. they, they rush to the first commercial use, which is copywriting. Mm -hmm. But GPT-3 could be way more than that, commercial or non-commercial. Where do you see that going? And is it, is it a fad or is it as big as some people make it? What's your gut feeling on that? Um, you know, one thing that I'll do is I will... So I have a collection on Product Hunt of everything that I've seen that's related to GPT-3. Um, yeah. And I think it would be relevant to share. Find it. Yeah, so there's 54 products. Um, let me, I'll just tweet this out. And today's top product is also... Exactly. I was going to <laughs> <add> into it. <laughs> Called peppertype.ai. Like, this is an example on the one hand of what I was saying before, where there's a lot of sort of copycat or similar types of products. But the reason why I spend so much time on Product Hunt is because I get to see these trends as they're emerging, like as they're happening, you know? So let me tweet about this. Um, let's say 50 plus... Um, GPT-3 products. Um, this is probably boring to hear, but... As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career? Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. 
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. While Chris is tweeting, for the people who might be listening to the recording, obviously you won't be able, if you're seeing the video record as well, which is a screen record, if you can't, you obviously will not be able to click on the shared tweet, <laughs> but go to Twitter, type in the, in the search form from Chris Messina, and then just type a couple of words that you've seen the shared tweet so you can find the interactive version yep. of what he shared. Um, so I also just pinned it to this space. So if people want to check that out, um, that's live. Anyways, um, yeah, so one, I do it's think that... It, it, it's not there yet? Sorry to interrupt. No, it just didn't come oh, up. Okay. Yeah, I mean, in general, I think like the trend towards synthetic text, synthetic speech, synthetic images, synthetic video um, is only going to accelerate and become something where it's almost like a paintbrush. It sort of becomes like a normal tool in creative expression. There is a great deal of concern that I have about, obviously, the negative impacts and uses of this technology um, and of related technology, but it's, it feels inevitable. You know, there's going to be a lot of academics who go off and just sort of like toil around and play around with things and come up with papers and write stuff and publish to archive.org. Um, but then there will be commercial usages, right? And so if you're a company and you're looking at your marketing spend and you're looking how much you're paying your staff to write content, you know, content to be put out there on social media on a regular basis, and instead you could have one or two interns that are equipped with a GTP3 product um, and it generates stuff, you know, to churn into the grist mill of social media um, and social media marketing, which is a new form of it's not passive advertising, but it's not advertising in the previous sense, which was, you know, a hundred X or a thousand X more expensive. It only makes sense. It's just the more efficient way of producing, you know, variable content um, for the platforms that demand more and more stuff. And this is where the creator economy and authenticity become so important and a hedge against the over, I guess, artificial sweetener, uh, approach to, you know, real and good content and good connection. So, I mean, this is a very big statement, but to answer your question, yes, I think it's going to accelerate Two, I think people are going to be, they're going to adopt these things without thinking that hard about it because it's about lowering costs. And three, in a couple of years, we're going to find ourselves in a much worse situation than we did with the content farms that overtook Google for several years um, mm -hmm. because these bots are just going to be generating stuff and we're going to find it very, very hard to tell apart what is real and what's not real. Very interesting. I'll be looking forward to see how that, <laughs> how this new challenge appears <laughs> and how it's going to be squashed because... Did the did the farm bots that you mentioned Google had to squash? Was that a challenge that was overcome, or are we still? I, I, would, I guess we're still grappling with it. Yeah, I would say that we're both grappling with it, but I think Google also has really changed the way that it offers its search. And there were a number of big algorithm changes that happened over the years that disrupted a lot of people's businesses. Um, there were several content farm businesses that were, you know, if not multi-million, maybe billion-dollar businesses that went to zero, um, sort of like Farmville, because the platforms realized that these were parasites. 
and that yeah. they were really destroying the value of their services. I mean, this is in some ways why the way that we think about search today isn't going to be the way the search is experienced in the future. We think about web pages and you know these documents that are just sitting out there that you go to um, that are surfaced in search results as being this kind of ideal. Um, what's the word? Um, uh, when you're the best at something, anyways. I forget, but where it's like a, um, you're in the arena and the best stuff bubbles to the top. Well, actually what Google wants to become is, uh, an agent or assistant that you ask questions and it synthesizes the answers from looking at a number of different resources and a number of different media formats and types, right? The fact that we think that Google should only deliver kind of static web page results is an artifact of the way in which the web was architected and built before. Now there's a lot more content being stored in video, in audio, in podcasts. And so if Google can actually extract insights from that type of content and then answer a question for you, sure, it can point to the resources where it got that stuff from. But increasingly, that's going to be a better user experience because you're going to be out in the world, you know, living your life, ideally. I don't know what we're going to be doing in the future, but walking around, yeah. asking questions, trying to understand things. And instead of trying to comb through, you know, 10 blue links on a search page, We'll just have a conversation with a, you know, artificial intelligence along the lines of what we saw with Samantha and her. I'll be looking forward to that as well. Because <laughs> it sounds both interesting and scary. I mean, it's both dystopic scary. and it's also incredible. Yeah. It could go both ways. It, could it will go, go both ways. Exactly. Because that's when uh, the word you just use, dystopic, when people usually use it, it's binary it's either it goes super well or it goes super bad look at all the movies look at any cyberpunk movie and it's right. if it goes bad it goes really bad right but as we've i mean you've seen technology waves come you know come to life and then die as you've seen it's always both and yes it does scare our grandparents but our grandparents also understand that now you don't need to uh, go to the encyclopedia to find out the capital of whatever because you can look it up <laughs> right. on your phone so a bit of both. Um, I have a question from Reddit Sass, which was left async, so I'll just be the voice for it. Yep. Uh, yep. We're switching gears now. I guess okay. that's normal for an AMA. Uh, hi, Chris. Thanks for doing the AMA. As an avid product hunter, what do you look for in a website slash product that makes you think this is a great product or this will score great on product hunt? Hmm. Uh, I'm guessing you get this question a lot, but... Um, you know, so... It never gets old for people. <laughs> Let me... Um, I'll explain a little bit about how, what I do, and then come around to an answer to this question, because there's, sure. there's a little bit of a dovetail here. Um, I joined Product Hunt in 2014, so I've been around for a while. And you know, in the beginning, I was actually a little bit skeptical about the platform, because it seemed like another type of popularity contest, where people would vote on things and say what's good and what's not. And based on what I'd seen with platforms like Dig and Slashdot, it just always seemed to go down this path of getting negative over time. Um, and thankfully, thanks largely to the efforts of Ryan Hoover, um, I feel like he did a really, really great job of cultivating a very positive, productive community long before, you know, people were complaining about social media and how toxic so social media had become. Like from first principles, he seemed to think that having a positive, productive conversation and community was a core value proposition of the platform. And so as a result, that was one of the reasons why I became so 
I guess, active and participatory in it because it was like, this is a great place for me to take the things that I'm finding organically and share them with this community where I can have a conversation about them. And so that's how it started. And then over time, there were, you know, similar to the whole SEO Google thing that we just talked about, um, this vibe around finding a hunter that had some audience because there was a period on product and where the person who hunted something if they had a, any kind of following, their followers would get notified of the products that they posted. So if I've got a thousand followers on Product Hunt, then a thousand people are going to get notified. A couple of years ago, they turned that off, but there's still this aura around getting a specific hunter to hunt your product. And there is some upside, some benefit. Um, and anyways, as a result, I do allow people to essentially schedule a hunt with me up to 30 days in advance. And now my schedule is just completely booked. And now the problem I'm getting is that people are kind of complaining. They're like, oh, your calendar is always booked. And I'm like, I'm sorry. Like, that's just, you can hunt it yourself if you want. Um, so to answer your question, there's, it's, it's sort of like two-sided for me. One is I just make sure that when someone requests that I hunt them, their product doesn't one seem like a scam or a spam or that it isn't working or that they're just testing the waters. Like it actually has to be something that you can like sign up for and try and use. Um, and that it's ready for, like, I think of product hunt as the Olympics of product. So I don't hmm. want second tier or third rate, or just kind of like throwaway junk that, you know, you're trying to make money off of, you know, manipulating people. Um, and so I do, act as a kind of high pass filter for stuff that I, I publish. On the other hand, there are things that I just encounter organically still. And I'm like, Oh, that's really cool. Or, Oh, that's like meeting the moment. And they've really captured something that I think is relevant for a broader audience to see and to have a conversation about. Um, and sometimes I share it and those things become, you know, popular and well-liked and other times I post it cause I think it's cool and no one else really responds. So I don't have some magic secret sauce in terms of my ability to get things to pop on product hunt, but I do think that products that are well-articulated know what problem they're trying to solve. They're well-designed and clear tend to do better or have a much better shot of connecting with the product audience. Sometimes there are products that are just kind of like thrown together, but they're really clever or really smart or do something, you know, unique or different um, or take advantage of some new API or technology in a way that, um, people are like surprised or like satisfied by an example of this was, uh, several months ago I launched, um, what was it? Uh, it was essentially a way to bring back your kind of, you know, past relatives from a photo using deep fake technology, technology. Um, um, and, oh God, what was, um, uh, Ancestry.com launched this thing, right? And it was just some little marketing gimmick that they put together. Um, but it ended up going viral. And I'm not saying that I had anything to do with this, but I was watching that trend and given that it fit into the whole deep fake thing, but it was a specific story, a specific use case, and one that was like really compelling and kind of emotional. And you know, you saw it, and especially during COVID, right, where people lost so many people, it just like was timed so well. Um, and again, that's a product that probably had, you know, been in work, works for months because their algorithm actually was quite good at using black and white or sepia toned images to generate that effect. Um, and anyways, I, I hunted it. I didn't talk to anyone at ancestry and it became the number one product, if not the week, maybe the day, um, and product hunt wrote it up in their newsletter and it just got a lot of buzz and, and so on. So that's the other thing that I, I guess I look for. 
And if I can follow up, mm -hmm. uh, before my follow up, I want to remind people they can ask a question, click the button in the lower left corner. I'll just interrupt my question if you if somebody comes and join with a question, joins with a question. If I can follow up, Chris, what's um, besides what you just said, and which would be common knowledge, common common sense advice of don't be scammy. What's the top three things to not do when people are submitting a request for you to hunt their items? So for people who might not know, Chris, in case it wasn't obvious, he's one of the top, I mean, uh, number one product hunter on product hunt. And because of so many requests, he's had to make a form for which you go application process so that he might or might not uh, uh, hunt your product. Uh, when people do that, I suppose you have to turn down a lot of people based on a plethora of factors. What are some pet peeves, something that you can't really say unless you're asked, I guess? Yeah. Um, so one of the biggest things, really, um, people can request that I hunt them via my Calendly. And because, again, of the scarcity of the dates that I have available, because I'm, I'm limited to hunting at most two products a day. So basically, that's the limit on my capabilities. Um, and so some people will just sort of book a time in the future, and either they'll hope that they'll be available there, like, or the product will be ready by the time that I go to launch them, or they're just you know trying to reserve it, and then they'll figure out what to do with it later. And that's highly irritating. I mean, essentially, they're depriving some other maker uh, the opportunity to launch. Um, and I'll go... So the other part of my process, which is kind of ridiculous when you hear it, but this is just the limitation of product time, is every day around between 8 and 11 p.m., I will go into my Airtable where ideally someone has filled up my form and I will take all the metadata that they've submitted and I will basically fill out Product Hunt's form and I'll schedule the launch. Mm -hmm. The most annoying thing is when someone has booked a time on my Calendly, but they haven't actually filled in my form. And so now I'm left to mm -hmm. figure out, do I go to their website and try to come up with the materials myself? And sometimes I do, depending on the product. Um, or in other cases, I'm just like, okay, well, you, you blew your shot. And now I, I essentially have a backlog of, actually, let me check right now. So I have this air table that people, you know, fill in my form. You can go to my website, chrismasina.me slash hunt dash me. That's where all this information is. Um, I have a backlog of about 133 products and around 43 of which are not actually scheduled um, on my Calendly. So I got like 150 products that are just waiting for me to hunt them. Um, and then, you know, that goes out into the future. So for the folks that never fill it out, it's super annoying. The other thing is that I'm actually very clear about the restrictions um, and limitations on the content. And sometimes people just don't even look at that. They, they ignore it. Um, and because unfortunately Airtable doesn't provide me with a lot of tools for doing data validation, sometimes people will submit uh, descriptions that are too long or, you know, they just won't follow the instructions. Um, or I've had people that list the makers of a product, not as usernames, but as like their full names. And of course that, doesn't do anything, right? That's just like some, you know, Bob Schmutz or whatever, like product doesn't know who that is. I don't know who that is. I'm not going to go find out who that is. And so the makers end up not getting credit. So there's just little things like that. It feels like it's like very basic, but you'd be surprised at how many people fail to follow instructions. So basically you don't have anything to do to prevent that, is it? Or I mean, it's I, not something that doesn't make more headache than right. it prevents yeah, and it doesn't happen all the time, but what happens, I would say like the the consequence 
if you don't follow the instructions that I give you, then your product is probably not going to look that good, or there's going to be some other technical problem, or I'm going to have to rewrite some of your content. And I think people would probably be surprised at the number of taglines or the number of descriptions that I've actually personally had to edit and change to fit Product Hunt's restrictions. Um, one, just as like a pro tip, Product Hunt stopped allowing um, logos to animate by default on the web. <laughs> And yeah. this is a major thing because, you know, you read all the blog posts written in 2017 and it's like, oh, you should have an animated logo. And while that's true, it's even more important now because of that change that the very first frame of your logo is a logo or something that's sensible because people are going to see that static frame first. Um, and I still get people who submit, you know, animations that start with a blank first frame and then it looks stupid when it's on the leaderboard. Yeah. And now, if I'm not mistaken, it only animates when you hover. That's that right. Specific now, uh, stupidly, in a way, and I have lots of complaints about Product Hunt, but I'm in it, so I would. Um, but on mobile, it does animate. So if you only use Product Hunt on mobile, then you probably never even notice or see that behavior on desktop. But most of Product Hunt's um, traffic, I believe, is on the web. Um, and so it, I don't know, it just makes sense to kind of fit with that restriction. Yeah, that makes sense. So, Bottom line, number one pet peeve is people not doing their homework yeah. when they're going through, their, through this process. Um, leave for a hunt aside for a second, Chris. Yeah. What's next for Chris Messina in the next year, half a decade? <laughs> well, I can tell you um, what the immediate focus for me is going to be, and I can't really say beyond five years, um, is that um, I just... I'm actually still in the process of, of writing my announcement post, but I've decided to join um, Republic and Republic is an equity crowdfunding wow. um, like service basically. And I've been in touch with them for several years and a number of things have happened that have brought me to this point. So what's important about this for me is essentially, you know, with all the work that I've been doing on product hunt to help people launch and get out there from like a marketing and community perspective, I felt like, I wanted to be able to go further and actually support makers and founders in fundraising. And so what Republic allows um, makers to do is to bring their product um, or service or business or whatever it is, and to you know raise money through uh, equity crowdfunding. And this is different than going the venture route, because essentially what you're doing is you're raising money from the people who are most passionate or excited about you. It's very much like Kickstarter, but for businesses, for companies. And a number of things have changed in the U.S. regulations starting in 2016 that allow individuals to participate in the upside of a lot of you know, what's been going on in the market. Um, and so that's, that's huge. The big thing that just happened uh, last year was that the regulations changed once again to allow companies to raise up to $5 million through um, equity crowdfunding. Previously, it was capped at a million dollars. And so for some founders that wanted to raise a lot more money, it was not that interesting or less interesting. But um, a good example of this actually is Gumroad, just raised on yep. Republic. Um, and you know that was before I worked for Republic, but I participated in that um, crowdfunding. And it was just such a, I don't know, example of the future where a company is deeply connected to its community, they're in conversation with them, and they're able to kind of reward their community over time, presuming they're successful through an investment. So that's what I'm going to be doing for at least the next several whiles. And, and I think Gumroad had initially a target of a million, but it was just uh, broken yeah. over and extended to 5 million. That's right. right. 
That's right. So it's yeah. one of those things where, you know, you kind of test the waters and you see like, oh, how much interest is there? And how much do I want to kind of put on my cap table from this, um, from the, from the crowd. Um, and in this case, Gumroad had so much momentum and so much excitement and it was timed so well with the creator economy that I think that, you yeah. know, um, Sahil decided to expand, um, his race. Yeah, and it speaks as well to Sahil's efforts to keep in touch with the community. You know, this this common piece of advice that might become a platitude one day, if it hasn't already, of building an building for for an audience and all that, which I truly believe in. Yeah. Uh, but I have seen that as well, and I'm happy to to hear this. Uh, you joining Republic, which, by the way, is this the first place you've where <laughs> this, you've disclosed? This, this is yes, yes. There you go. We, we've got breaking got some news, news, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> we've got exclusive access. Um, I'm happy to hear this because I see the need of Republic not only based on the regulations you've mentioned, but just today I've got an email from TransferWise. Sorry, now they're called Wise. That mm. They're crowdfunding through, and they do the, the same that Curve or Deliveroo have done here in the UK, which is sending a, an, an email or two to test the waters, but then... You know, so people can't really vote, but they can uh, register interest. And based on that, they make the next step. And obviously, right. they want to have a lot of interest. And yeah, Republic, as far as I've understood and I've seen, and I wanted to join Gumroad's investment round, but I sadly came in too late. Uh, Gum, uh, Republic is made specifically so that that can happen hassle-free for both sides, for the person, for the company raising and for the people who's, who are, are investing. Yeah. Yeah, and in fact, like for, um, I guess to answer what you're saying, if you go to republic.co slash coming dash soon, you can see a number of uh, investment opportunities that are doing exactly that, that are testing the waters to see what the interest is. And it's a really great way of kind of seeing what's happening and what opportunities are about to emerge. Yeah, and on the homepage for people, uh, the the community we run is is mostly is mainly mainly people who are either bootstrapping or into indie hacking. Yep. For anybody who knows Josh Pickford from Bear Metrics, which right. he sold, he is right now raising money for maybe finance, maybe That's not right. finance. Yep. and he's right there on the homepage. Uh, half a million raised, nine hundred five investors, and ten million valuation cap. Yep. How can he have a ten million valuation cap if if the law? allows him to go up to 5 million. So you can raise 5 million, right? But your valuation can be set separately. Oh, okay. I just misunderstood yeah. valuation cap. Yeah. yeah. Lovely. Uh, does that mean if you're going uh, with Republic, does that mean you're going to take it easier with, um, with Product Hunt or should we not expect any decrease <laughs> in activity there? You know, my, my intention is to continue to do largely what I've been doing. Um, especially around product hunt. I think on the one hand, it gives me that edge because I'm seeing what's happening. Now, to me, this allows me to add an additional, I don't want to say service, but essentially to, because, so, so my role is to be head of business development for the West Coast. So mm -hmm. Republic has a pretty strong presence on the East Coast in New York and in other cities around the world. Um, but they really were missing that presence in West Coast conversations in Silicon Valley. And so my job is to be out here and to basically bring more awareness and visibility to this crowd equity or equity crowdfunding platform. Um, and I think product hunt is a big part of the way that I reach and connect and serve the broader community. And so I intend to keep participating in that. Um, you'll probably see some changes to my website in terms of how people can reach out to me. And then in terms of my activities that I'll be engaged in otherwise. But yeah, I still want to be very visible, very present um, 
and supporting makers and founders and, you know, doing what they love to do. And I appreciate it. It speaks highly of your passion and, um, it proves that what you're saying is true and it isn't just a PR statement or <laughs> something like that, which ties in into my next question, uh, probably the last or getting close mm-hmm. to the last, uh, but you have already asked, but I'm going to pose it anyway. Mm-hmm. You, you've achieved, you've achieved success in, uh, in conventional terms. Um, I, I guess every person has to define success for themselves, but right. in society's eyes, you have achieved that. Okay. You've invented this great thing. You've done stuff that has gone to the moon or hasn't gone anywhere, and that's good for your experience. Yeah. And every person must have both ends of the spectrum. So you've you've kind of proven yourself, uh, if I may say so. Hmm. Are you are you ever afraid that maybe afraid isn't the best word? Mm-hmm. Are you ever concerned that booking stuff in advance, maybe the product hunt uh, uh, launches? Are you ever afraid that committing to these things in the future, day to day, day to day, are ever gonna harm you, or are you ever gonna are ever gonna prevent you from changing your mind, saying, "You know what, guys, today, the ninth, the eighteenth of June, I'm not doing absolutely anything." <laughs> Do you ever have that? Um, that's that's not the fear that I would have uh, thought you would ask about. Um, Reason why I'm asking, yeah. Fabrizio from Typefully and Milbury is in the audience. Hi, Fabrizio. And, and on his uh, on their his AMA with his co-founder uh, a couple of days ago, we were talking slightly, slightly about lifestyle optimization. Mm. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Oh, where'd you go? No, I'm here. I'm here. I, I was I was thinking whether I have anything else to add. But yeah, feel free to, to uh, let us know if you ever think of it that way or if it doesn't cross your mind, I guess. Well, no I, I would, I would, um, I would answer or approach what you're asking. I think in a slightly adjacent way, which on the one hand is, you know, mm, well, one there's like the mental health aspects and the burnout aspects and the challenge with maintaining an audience and maintaining visibility and, and relevance. Um, and I know a lot of creators are, you know, they get super stressed out about this stuff. You know, my 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 partner. Um, she's on Instagram and has a pretty, you know, solid following, but she's needed to take some time off from that, um, you know, during the pandemic. And she has a lot of anxiety and concerns about, um, the consequence of, of deciding to take care of herself, you know? So in a way, yes, there is this kind of, you know, sense of commitment or obligation or need for me to keep showing up and keep doing what I'm doing. And like you said, like if people are counting on me to launch their products on product hunt, um, I have to do that. 
You know, I made that commitment. On the other hand, I also am in control of my calendar and it's up to me to sort of look to the future and say, you know, when am I taking time off? When am I going to be unavailable? And am I certain that wherever I'm going, one, I'm going to have access to the internet and two, uh, that internet's going to work in terms of like hunting something. And, um, I have had to, like, you know, decline different invitations or in some cases I reach out to the makers and I'm like, Hey, I'm, I'm traveling. I'm on a plane. I'm going to be gone uh-huh. actually, um, uh, in January of 2020 before the pandemic I did, I went on a 10 day silent meditation, um, Vipassana course and I was completely disconnected. I didn't even have a phone. They stole, well, they didn't steal. They, they took our phones and they put them in a safe. And so I was completely inaccessible for that period. So that's going to happen from time to time. And I think it's just up to me to know that, to own it, to speak to it, um, and to recognize that taking care of myself is the only way that um, I'm going to be able to keep doing what I'm doing. So you were on a meditation retreat and mm-hmm. the head yogi, the spiritual teacher, took your phone and everything. Did you have to say, no, no, wait, hold on, all these products are waiting for me, we can't do this? Uh, that was the deal. Everyone had to have their you know, phones and digital technology confiscated and you know, put in a lockbox. There we go. So yeah. people felt sour because you couldn't help them anymore, I guess. Well, I, well, this is why. I just had to like, communicate ahead and be like, during this period, I'm sorry, I'm not around. Yeah, which is, which is understandable because you know, uh, I, I know Prahan can make or break a, a a a product, but yeah. at the end of the day, I guess people have to understand that you're still human, and at the you know you're doing this out of your goodwill or your your yeah. impulse to help people. It's also so you know like like I said, although having a hunter you know can be useful, and there are some things that we can do to you know help bring some visibility or validation to your product. People can still hunt their own stuff. You know, I'm not ultimately like a roadblock for that. If they want to get their stuff out there, they can do it. I'm happy to help yeah. when I'm available for that. Um, and I feel honored that people trust me in that way. Um, and I'm oftentimes rooting for people on the sidelines. But if I'm inaccessible or unavailable, need to take a mental health day, or want to spend some time with my partner, that's what I'm going to choose to do. Yeah, cool. Do you have to go? Because we booked this for an hour. I want to be respectful of your time. Yeah, I mean, if there's other questions or anything that people want to like, you know, pop in, I'm happy to answer them. But... Sure. While we wait for people to uh, request the mic, tell us at least a bit, at least a short version of Hashcoin. Ah, ah, thank you. Actually, this is a this is something that I'm thinking about um, layering mm-hmm. on to my product hunt activities because of that issue that I described, where people are kind of getting to the point where they're frustrated that they're unable to to book me for their hunt. And so, let me back up a little bit and describe this thing that I kind of quietly launched. It's called the uh, the Hashcoin. Um, I worked with um, Rally.io to put this together and to launch it, and it's a creator coin. What that means is it's an ERC-20 um, sidechain Ethereum-based currency, I guess, um, that allows – it's sort of like creating a loyalty card where if you buy my coin and hold my coin, um, there will be rewards that the Rally platform provides on a weekly basis, and then people are able to spend their currency within the Rally ecosystem. So, for example, my friend Brett Kinsella, who runs the VoiceBot podcast, um, issued the bot coin. And if you hold a certain amount of bot coin, then that gets you access to his private Discord server. So we're starting to see the evolution of currency 
being able to be a way of recognizing, you know, loyalty, participation, interest. And for those who get there early and buy in, there can be kind of upside over time based on holding a currency, right? Because it becomes more in demand um, and there's more movement of that currency in um, just, I guess, economies, and social economies. So what I'm imagining or thinking of doing is actually for people who hold a certain amount of hash coin, that might be a qualifying way for me to say, okay, I'm going to prioritize your hunt or your launch because you're actually part of my community and you're circulating um, hash coin within this crowd of folks who are interested or following, you know, my work or want to participate in it. Previously, you know, I, I kind of took, you know, fiat donations through a platform called Coffee, KO-FI. You know, I've been with them for a long time and it's been great, but there's not a lot of visibility. There's not a lot of interaction between the people who are, let's say, you know, appreciating my contributions. And what's cool about Hashcoin is that the more people who, you know, buy some or exchange it, the more that those people who hold it benefit. So I really like that part of um, creating more value for the community around me. Yeah, I know coffee. I, I want to tell people it's a it's a quick mention. I believe it might be how we've gotten this AMA because I wanted to get you to buy your coffee, like K O dash F I. Right. And um, it was there as a, as an open door at any time for for an AMA, and I guess that's how it happened. And I also wanted to note that Christopher John, who John's uh, enthusiasm, who had the reactions when we were talking, when you were uh, discussing um, Hashcoin. And ah. Christopher has made a very, very nice tool called Twirl. Yes. Yeah, very interesting system. And it's it's one of these use cases of crypto or of NFTs that uh, are usually given as an example. But as we have seen, there's, there's a bit of a gap between uh, the early phases of hype and this is what it's going to be used for and then people actually doing it. So I'm glad to see that you have a connection between so what you said people who hold hashcoin can have priority yeah. for advice hunt whatever very interesting i Are literally you- and by the way like i literally had this dream the other night this is how messed up my brain is i had a dream where i had an entire <laughs> construction of this like hashcoin currency around like sponsoring and kind of being part of product hunt launches and it was just like oh that would actually make a lot more sense and so there's going to have to be some some building done to you know kind of do a check on someone's rally id to see if they do hold coin and then that gives them some priority access or something it's sort of like you know imagine um frequent flyer miles right if you reach certain statures or you have a certain number of miles then that unlocks different levels and at each of those levels you get a different level of service. So I'm imagining that that could be one way for me to also, um, again, recognize people who have you know been supporting me for a while, um, are paying attention, and then you know might need something from me, and I can support them um, in return. Interesting. I know you also have coaching sessions. Uh, right. I think you charge 250 per half an hour, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Would you have any way to integrate uh, that so that people can buy Hashcoin if is uh, pay with Hashcoin? for some of these sessions or do you see any way in which it can be integrated like that? Yeah. I mean, that's actually exactly what I'd like to do either to offer as an option, like for, you know, payment or subscription. Um, and I mean, it's great to, you know, obviously get paid in fiat and that whole, there's a lot of support for that obviously in the economy, but 
what would be really great. Again, I just, I don't know, I like this idea of rewarding people who buy that coin and then re receive a kind of like, you know, in income or, um, again, those rewards over time um, by owning it. So you could, let's say, you know, buy my coin and then um, I get a, I don't know, like a, a cut or something of that. And then I can turn that into Ethereum or rally tokens, or I can sort of convert it back to fiat if I want, or I keep it within the community. And then I just provide those rewards out to people who have previously booked my services. And so it's a way, again, I don't know, I just... I like the alignment of the incentives of this type of thing. And I'll, I'll say that this is largely experimental. Um, this is not something that I'm necessarily trying to do to create like, you know, how I'm going to make my living. Cause now obviously I work for Republic, but it is worth it. I think for me to experiment with these things, because one, it exposes people to new forms of monetization that are more peer to peer. And second, I think based on everything that's happening in web three and the fact that Republic also has a whole crypto arm, I need to be on top of this stuff to see what's emerging and what's happening based on actual usage, not just like reading white papers and stuff like that. So that's the other reason why I'm I'm playing around with this. That makes sense. Do you have time for one extra question? That yeah, also, I'm uh, trying to add Daryl up here, but Twitter Spaces is unfortunately not working so well. Oh, okay. So that's why I'm... Because you made this room. I'm used to... In the past, I've made the room and I usually see the invitations, but uh, I guess you're the host. I am. Yeah, I'll see if I can make you a co-host, but um. uh, I think based on previous discussions with people from 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 spaces, that's yet to be done. Yeah, it's not, it's not really quite there yet. There yet. Okay, but you know, it's still an early product, so <laughs> slowly but surely, it's we'll the have least. It. Um, I would say, um, what's it called? Reliable of the social audio platforms that I've used. I'm excited to try Green Room, but. Um, when I add people on Twitter spaces to speak, like it works maybe 40% of the time. Yeah. So Daryl, I apologize. I don't know if you want to restart Twitter and come back and try again, but I've tried to add you four or five times. Yeah. Sometimes it does this where you, you invite somebody, but it doesn't really work until they request. And some other times it's the other way around. Exactly. They, and I've tried both. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You said uh, you had one more question. Yeah, yeah, we, we had it from uh, from uh, uh, on a private channel from, from Reddit. Okay. It says, uh, it's kind of like what we discussed earlier, but maybe you have something else to add. Mm -hmm. It says, hey, Chris, what modern products or services do you think are shaping the industry today and tomorrow, and why? Yeah, I mean, I think this does kind of go back to what I was saying before about synthetic media. Um, but then I also just look at like the creator economy and the shift away from ad-based free services. And I think that's going to be so significant in ways that it's going to be really hard to anticipate and understand. And I don't know if it's going to create an economy where there's a lot of, or a smaller number of haves and a much larger economy of have-nots. Um, like where does free fit into that future? And will things that are free invariably become so overrun with ads that they're just like unusable? You know, like I have a number of, um, you know, screenshots that I've tweeted about, about paywalls and what the reading experience is like if you're not a paying member. And it's horrific. The other thing that I'm really worried about, I guess, in an abstract way is let's say we move over to a subscription model where we are paying for things and then ads get added into that anyways, just because you're paying for something via subscription of course, doesn't make it illegal for them to add in advertising. And so that's something that I'm really worried that we're going to be lured into where we're like, oh, this is an amazing experience. Like, let's get rid of the ads. 
And then the ads just come in anyways. And now not only are we paying, but we're also seeing more ads. So, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of heat around that. This, uh, this, this two split ways we're going. And uh, I would love to talk more about it. But as I promised earlier, I can be the voice for a question. So Daryl was saying, uh, sorry, I don't know why it's not working. But um, his question is, for someone brand new in the product hunt space, what is your recommendation on best being active and productive in the community based on your time on hunting? Uh, I, I might have messed up reading the tonality mm. here. Does the question make sense? Um, there's two ways to interpret that question, but I guess I can provide just kind of, you know, a general overview. One is, you know, if you're, if you want to become a hunter specifically, like, cool, that's great. Like, you know, put out your shingle and say, Hey, like I want to help people. And then, you know, just as it was for me, it's going to take a while to, you know, for you to be proactive, to reach out to people. Like, like I said before, on the one hand, I get a lot of inbound people coming and requesting, you know, that I hunt them, but that's because they read some blog post someplace that said, Oh, you need to find a hunter, a hunter like Chris Messina or Kevin David William or whatever. Or I'm in a couple, um, leaderboards for hunters. So they're just finding me. They don't really know anything about me. They don't care about me, but they're like, Oh, you're something that I need to like, I need to talk to you to hunt this thing. Um, but if you're someone who wants to be a value add hunter, then as you find products or there's people in your community that are building things, you can invite them to say, Hey, there's this cool platform called product hunt. Um, I can post products to the leaderboard. Would you be interested in me hunting you? And I'll work with you to develop that content and to put it together with you. Um, that's kind of how I got my start. And that's what I was doing for years before. Now people are coming to me, um, on the flip side. So it's like any other creator platform. Like, you know, if you want to be a YouTuber, then you've got to produce videos and maybe one day, eventually, because you've produced 500 videos, someone comes and sees it and it goes viral. And then all of a sudden you have an audience. So, you know, if I started in 2014 and I've gotten to the place now where I've launched nearly 3000 products and people are coming to me, it took 3000 products to get there. Um, and those all obviously were not inbound. Um, more generally, though, if you want to participate in the product hunt ecosystem um, and benefit from that, there are opportunities where you can chime in on products that you see and leave comments. You can leave reviews. You can try things out and provide feedback. That's a really great way of providing value as opposed to just looking at something and say, oh, this is cool. You try it out. You provide some screenshots, You know, maybe a Loom video, um, and you just kind of, you know, do something that's meaningful. Um, you can participate in the discussions and I believe it may be still going on right now, but product hunt recently was doing this kind of hackathon, um, where if you built products that were related to the environment, um, you could win a thousand dollars or something, um, and do that. So there are also events like that, that you can participate in. Um, and there are lots of different things that you can contribute. Even if you're not a programmer or a designer, um, you can be a tester, you can be someone who, you know, just provides feedback. Um, or if you do have those skills, then you can find other people to collaborate with. Cool. I hope that answers Daryl's question. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, Daryl is putting his reps. He has his own podcast. And uh, great. I think he's doing a great job with his uh, co-host, Nick. Um, yeah. But by, by the way, also, like if you have a podcast, Product Hunt is a great place to source speakers, right? Or, or guests. You go there and you see a product that you think is really cool and you reach out to them and say, Hey, I really like what you're building. Do you want to come on my podcast and talk about it? Talk about your perspective. Talk about what you've seen. Mm. Why did you build it this way? Like, I think that'd be really great. So the PR attention you mentioned earlier as a benefit could come, doesn't have to come from uh, traditional right. PR no. platforms like 
the dream tech crunch mentioned or whatever could also <laughs> come from somebody. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Interesting take. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Chris, do you have to go or are we going deeper into this? Um, it'd be great to wrap up. Yeah. Um, you know, it's my cool. second day on the job, so I want to make sure that I'm also present for um, <laughs> fire hose. We don't, we don't want this AMA to get you in trouble. At <laughs> I would hate that. I'll pay that, especially after we we got the the, the, the exclusive news, right? piece yeah. of info. Yeah, yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Anything we've missed? Something that you wanted to mention but wasn't? Um, no, man. I mean, like, I just I really appreciate one, like, you know, the conversation and the opportunity to come in and, and you know answer questions about this. I feel like we got to go really deep, and hopefully, this was beneficial. If anybody wants to reach out to me um, via Twitter, obviously they can find me at Chris Messina, or if you go to my website, there's a contact form there. You can send me a message that way. Um, I I also try to respond to my DMs um, on Twitter, um, even though they're filtered, and unfortunately, I get. <laughs> two to three a day. And it's, it, it is hard for me to keep up with. So, um, anyways, if you want to try to reach out to me, you know, um, I am, I'm available, um, out there. And I guess if people really have something they want to put forward to you, they'll be not resistant to a point where they're bothering you, but they're going to give some space and, you know, yeah, I mean, like I, if you're able to be sort of, um, patiently persistent, um, yeah, that's, that, that's probably the, the way to approach it. I think people who maybe, um, come with an attitude that they're entitled, like that really turns me off. Um, you know, and so just being like, Hey, like, remember, like I reached out to you two weeks ago and I didn't hear anything. I would love to launch with you. Um, that tends to be like, Oh, right. Okay. You know, cause I, I do want to be helpful. It's just really hard to scale myself. Bottom line. Don't be the LinkedIn automation. Oh, yeah. Who- email don't use gpt3 to automate your outreach to me how about that there we go there we go (laughs) thanks very much for doing this i just want to tell people that we'll be continuing this if they have which people usually do questions as an afterthought to the discussion we've had and the the questions we've had uh chris is doing a text ama as well on the SaaS subreddit yep and the top questions are getting to a, a goodie from Chris. He was nice enough to put this on the table. Two consultations for the product, which is usually charged at $250 yep. per half an hour. Yep. So this is on Reddit SaaS. That's slash r slash SaaS. Uh, Chris will make the post when you know in the next hour or so, probably when he'll get a couple of minutes. And that's going to go over for the next hours, maybe even next day. Yeah, for the next day. You know, if people want to drop questions, comments in there. Um, I'll yeah. be around so watching what, that. what I like is that it's async. So obviously they, they, people don't have to expect an immediate answer, right. but when Chris gets an opening, he will answer the questions there. We've got upcoming AMAs. We've got one or two per week with Andrew Gazdecki from MicroQuire, Vlad, the founder of Webflow, or Emmanuel from Bubble.io. We've got this lined up and many more. This is all public on the, on the subreddit. And uh, yeah, thanks very much for tuning in today and for listening to us. I think Chris was very, very helpful. Thank you again, Chris. Awesome. Thanks so much. This is great. Enjoy the rest of your day and have a great day and week and month, year, life, whatever. Everybody who came here today. Cheers. Ciao, everybody.